2019 has seen an IPO boom in the markets as unicorns and major companies come public and give investors a chance to participate in exciting growth stories, though at less than exciting prices in a lot of cases. This week we look at CrowdStrike, a cloud cybersecurity provider that checks each of those boxes to see whether the fundamentals outweigh the valuation. Mike raises questions about how the company describes its aims and whether that's really that special. It's a, they're an information security business. That's their job. That's the job of any security outfit is to make it more costly for people to steal or penetrate defenses of the customer. That's like, I mean, from an economic lens, that's what security services are. I look at triple digit revenue growth and a number of positive customer metrics and try to take that to the other side of the investing story. It's it's one of those companies that you wish you could just ignore the multiple and just analyze as a business and understand whether it's sustainable before you get into the multiple. And the multiple is crazy. But yeah, I don't know. I I guess that's, that's where I see cause for optimism. The company is still in its volatile initial days and is down nearly 10% since we started looking at it last week. It also still trades at around 30 times next year's estimated sales. Is there a way to think about this the way a venture capitalist would, or would that be a classic bubble mistake? We're going to discuss on this week's Behind the Idea. I have two quick notes before we begin. First, I want to let you know about a new podcast that we're going to be hosting on Seeking Alpha. It's called Let's Talk ETFs. It debuts Wednesday, July 10th, so after the 4th of July weekend. It's hosted by my colleague, Jonathan Liss. He's been interested in ETFs for a long time. He's been working at Seeking Alpha for over a decade, and I think he's been involved in our ETF coverage over that entire period, one way or the other. He's going to be speaking about the funds with some of the bigger players in the industry. He has a lot of interesting guests coming out out of the gate. So if you're interested in more insights on ETFs, especially as the sector continues to evolve and grow, look up Let's Talk ETFs for its launch on Wednesday, July 10th. It's going to be available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. So keep your eyes peeled for that. The other note, quickly, I recorded on my built-in mic instead of my plug-in mic on my end. So the sound isn't as good for me. I apologize for that. Hope it still comes out okay. Hope you enjoy it. With that said, here's this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're covering a hot new IPO that is generating crazy growth and earning crazy multiples as it turns around an industry. No, it's not Beyond Meat. We're talking CrowdStrike, ticker symbol CRWD. The cybersecurity company appears to have beyond impressive revenue growth in a sector that would seem to be an ongoing need in our world. But it's also priced that way since its recent IPO. We take a look at three Seeking Alpha articles, one from our colleague Mark Petikoff that is optimistic about the company, if not necessarily bullish on the stock, one from Bert Hockfeld that was a pre-IPO bull case, and one from Wilsonville Capital that is more skeptical about the valuation. We try once more to wrap our value-oriented investing approach around a fast-growing story to see whether it's worth it and whether there's anything we can learn. Before we begin, 
Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work based on ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in any stocks we expect to discuss. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. With that said, Mike, happy Friday. What? Yeah, uh, got a Beyond Meat reference in at the top. That's good. That'll please our uh, our supervisors. Yeah, shout, shout out to George Moriarty, who is the editor-in-chief of Signalpa and was hoping we'd say something about Beyond Meat. There it is, George. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mike, the CrowdStrike, it's this cybersecurity company. Where, where do you want to start in terms of how we look at the company through these articles? Anything that sticks out to you? Oh, man. Does anything stick out to me? Yeah, I mean... Oh, we're going to probably get into all sorts of different things. So the first thing is, you know, and even Mark Penikoff and Bert Hochfeld, who both were bullish on the business, were cautious on the level, I think, at least a little bit. And these are two people who know a fair amount about software and information networks, were cautious about the idea of understanding the underlying technology in any detail. And that's even more true for me. So as we talk about this company, one of the big kind of overhangs for us is what does this, what does CrowdStrike do and how does its solution work? So maybe that's where I'd like to start. My understanding is CrowdStrike has kind of two main offerings for customers. They do information security. And the first offering is a sort of updated version of McAfee virus scan, something like that. Software that lives on device that detects threats and works to neutralize them. And then the other component is a kind of upscale intelligence. They have this data-centric model that helps identify threat activities, not only for from the customer's perspective, not only for you, but also for uh, CrowdStrike's other customers. And so by crowdsourcing all of the information from customers, CrowdStrike is able to deploy better solutions that benefit the entire customer base. As I say that, I wonder how that's not true of other companies. Like, could that possibly be an innovation that no one else has thought of before? And then I guess on top of all that, they have a premium offering where you know information security specialists will kind of be actively monitoring your threats and I guess, you know, these cool hacker people will be in some kind of command center typing away at their keyboards to stop the little red skull and crossbones from reaching the center of the maze or whatever it is that these information security people do. So that's where I want to start. What is this thing? Well, I think your explanation, which obviously derived, we're deriving from the same sources, largely the articles we read and potentially whatever we read in the S1 or perspectives. But 
Yeah, I think that's, I think the idea here is, or the context to add this to is we're in the cloud computing age, which as I understand it is that servers are, computing power is publicly available, not in the literal, anybody can walk into it, but you pool your resources rather than running a ton of servers in your own building or whatever else. And so with that, you have a lot more flexibility. You can add servers, you can scale up faster. The costs are less than having to build out your own servers, whatever else, but obviously you're open a little bit more to people futzing about, hackers and whatever else. And what I think is interesting when you look at some of the motivations here, the something that comes up a lot in the articles is that CrowdStrike is trying to increase the cost for hackers to get what they want done. To really, what do you, you know, yeah, like to... Of course they are. That's their job. I saw that too, but what is like, what is... I'm cranky, so look out. <laughs> uh, what, of course they want to... It's a, they're an information security business. That's their job. That's the job of any security outfit is to make it more costly for people to steal or penetrate defenses of the customer. That's like, I mean, from an economic lens, that's what security services are. Sure, but we can let, let's take let's take an analogy. Here's how I would. Here's how I'm sort of understanding it. Is you, I'm going to use soccer because I. I can have it in my head clear what they're trying to do. And I apologize if I get nerdy or contrary. Crowd strike. The striker is, is that where we're going? Not exactly. No, no, wasn't going because of strike. But what I'm thinking is one way of defending in soccer is to put 10 men behind the ball, to play a really low line, to have everybody sort of back at the, you know, the most uh, simplistic way of thinking about it is to have everybody in the penalty box defending whatever else. And when you have that as your approach, which pe- teams will do against the best teams in the world, if they just don't have, if, you know, if you're a little club from the middle of England and you're playing Manchester city, you might really park the bus is the phrase, right? And you're going to get a lot of shots shot at you, but because in soccer, goals are still really difficult because the goalie can use his hands, everything else. You can sometimes pull off a a happy result. You can catch them when they're napping. You can really hold off goals, whatever. And so that's an approach. That's a common approach. And the contrast is something that, for example, Liverpool, which just won the Champions League, their coach Jurgen Klopp is known for the Gegen pressing, the all of over the field pressing of the ball attack. As soon as you lose the ball, chase it. It's like a full court press in basketball. Rick Pitino and the Kentucky teams of the nineties or whatever, like always attacking, always attacking, which also, you know, in sports, you get tired and whatever else it comes with drawbacks. But the idea Klopp, for example, is known to say that the best playmaker in the world is a good press. Because you don't need to have a superstar on your team if you steal the ball in an attractive area. And as I read about, you know, Mark put together a, a quote from the founder and CTO, which talks about you can just have antivirus and malware. So you try to, I'm, I'm basically paraphrasing or rereading what Mark had in his article. 
the you try and catch the attack at the door by inspecting files. There's forensics. You try to catch them after the fact. There's network-focused security where you set up a firewall and sort of that, to me, sounds like parking the bus. And then there's real-time log analysis where you're trying to just pull all the information that's flowing on the cl cloud and then catch catch the problem. That, that That's how I understand it. And I think that's what they're doing. And so when they say increasing, like, antivirus and malware, that doesn't really increase the I have to be a little bit more clever, but it doesn't really increase the cost to me of trying to hack into your servers or whatever. Uh, I, I think we're both at the risk. I'm certainly at the risk of talking without true fundamental understanding, but that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. Is it's not it's not just a matter of, yeah, of course they're trying to defend. It's it's that they're trying to be more proactive. And what what I was sort of thinking in light of that is as because again, when you go into a new sector and you're trying to wrap your head around it, some might say put it in the too hard pile, right? Stick to your circle of competence. But one of the things that I like in these articles is the sort of soft quantitative analysis, the idea of looking at, and I know last week we talked about cars.com and you had done it looking at Glassdoor for cars.com at the time, looking at things that are available on the internet that aren't part of the company materials. They're not part of the SEC filings, but that are relevant, that can help inform your case. Trade magazines is one example, but in this case, Mark cites the how they compete against another competitor called Carbon Black and who has better ratings from Gartner. And Gartner, you know, is the is a renowned tech information reviews company consultancy. I can't remember exactly how to describe them, but that's like a pretty good standard. And so I thought that like once we're at this level of not really sure what they're doing, one way to kind of get into do they know what they're talking about is to try to understand how the industry views them, how experts view them, and whether that, you know, whether their employees are motivated and happy. With LinkedIn, you can sort of see what new positions they're opening. And so I thought that was an interesting way to try to unpack this. It was coming from somebody who understands this better than we do, but I don't know. I, so does that, do you buy that as a way to, do you buy my analogy, I guess? And then since I smuggled in the other point, do you buy as a way to understand something new using those sorts of indicators? Do I buy your analogy? Sure. I, I still not sure that I understand how that different strategy is necessarily going to lead to a more attractive business model, a, a better competitive position. And I'm, I'm also not sure still how differentiated it really is. It strikes me as the kind of behavior that an information security company would be just doing. And maybe that's, maybe that shows my ignorance that I don't understand how these information security companies work. It did not strike me as a world beating strategy, but again, I don't really know. I, I, that was a good explanation, though, of, of CrowdStrike's philosophy. And I think that gets to some of the things I was talking about, about dynamically responding. It sounds like they have algorithmic correlation analysis that helps track different behaviors by different people. So, yeah, maybe they, ha maybe they have something special in terms of their understanding of the way threat behavior works 
that helps them provide better services to everyone. I, I'm still kind of don't, don't know, but fine. I understand the argument. In terms of the outside sources and using qualitative information, I think it's generally very valuable and should be a part of everyone's approach. It doesn't always lead you to any different, the informational value can be low at, as a result of the sort of fruits of your exploration. And that was kind of how I felt reading Mark Penikoff's article. There were two competitors. One is CrowdStrike and the other is Black something? Danger Carbon Black? Black? Carbon Black, not Danger Black. Carbon Black. And they both had extraordinarily high ratings on Gartner. I think they were both in the four and a half star out of five category and had good, yeah, pretty good, I think would recommend ratings across the two of them. And so that's good. That's comforting, right? That, that you're pleasing to your customers, that you create value to your customers and you're at least on par. And I think Mark even made the case that potentially CrowdStrike was doing a slightly better job than Carbon Black. But, you know, does that encompass the entire competitive field, these two uh, companies? And does it tell us, does it change our sort of decision about how we feel about what type of business model and strategy CrowdStrike has? I think it's, a, a, it's better certainly than having bad reviews or being inferior to your competition but I'm not sure necessarily that it makes much more of an additional affirmative case. And that's, so I think as a general practice, it's absolutely something that people should do. I just don't know that you always necessarily get something important out of that. What do you think? I'm reminded of something Wester Go said when we were talking about JD, I think, and his argument was that, you know, management expertise or whatever, doesn't merit anything. It's they're good at what they do. It shows up in the numbers, and so I think that's a little bit. I think I think you're. What I'm hearing you saying is don't overweight that. It's interesting. It's worth knowing, but easy there, Tiger. If you start to think that this is the the magic solution, which I buy, I, I think that makes sense. I think that, and I think even the way I presented it a few minutes ago, it's something that you could be prone to. Oh, look at what great research I'm doing because I'm going a little bit further than the filings, which is not to Feel say great. do it. Feels oh, <laughs> you get that little. Woo, I'm such a good student. I'm such a good, such a good boy or girl researching this stock. Yeah, endowment bias would that be endowment bias? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe it would further entrench your commitment bias, which would be another reason I'm not fully with. Lester Goh's take on that. I think that you can find disconfirming information that way. So I think it's more, those outside sources are probably more interesting when they're not consistent with what you're already seeing in the financial statements. So, you know, in cases where the company is looking really strong on all metrics, but you're seeing, and I'm thinking of 
Valiant or some of these other sort of high flyers that booked great growth for a while and then sort of imploded, you could see in the conversations with employees that analysts were doing with those companies and that people who were bearish on the stock were doing that the information wasn't matching up. And so I think mismatches between the information that's available through third party or outside qualitative sources is much more interesting and much more valuable than alignment. So I, that's my kind of, I guess I agree with Lester, but I would add on to that, that I think if it disconfirms what you already believed, then it's much more important to pay attention to it. But I wouldn't pile it on to what you already sort of know. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think that's, I, it, with him, I think it was in the context of Richard Rue and whatever. I think it was meant as a positive. And so, but right, I think you're right. I think that's maybe the next step is to look at the, the hard quantitative stuff here, because I think that's what's, you know, again, what we struggle with normally. But what's interesting here is we're talking about a company that's growing really fast and is not tiny. It's not Again, to pick on Beyond Meat from earlier, Beyond Meat, I think their revenue is still fairly low at this point, and people are just sort of ascribing the entire protein share in the market as a potential opportunity for them. The global market for protein. <laughs> Demand is enormous. Every living, every living thing needs protein. I mean, what I think. pet... Beyond yeah, the, every beyond living thing. Not doing pet food. I mean, they could do pet food. They could do plant food. Plant they food. They could do. Not? They could do mushroom food. <laughs> so, in this case, we have a company that has two hundred fifty thousand dollars in revenue on a trailing twelve months basis basis as of two thousand nineteen, uh, January two thousand nineteen. They have their fiscal year ends January 31st. They're a company that more than doubled their revenue two consecutive years. They're a company that their Q1 growth, they sort of gave a range of 98% growth, more or less, year over year uh, in this S1. I don't think they've officially filed any numbers around Q1, but that's the numbers they gave. And... They're still at 250 million is the amount they're making right now. And they claim that they have a market, a potential market that is a hundred times bigger. So they're claiming about 1% market share. They'd say 25 to $30 billion is the total addressable market over the next couple of years. I'm, that's a, roughly the range that they've presented in the, in the S1. And so when you when we talk about for all our sort of questioning about what is the model clearly there something's working. One of the things that's interesting is that it appears that Dell, which is one of the biggest enterprise companies there is right now for enterprise computing, Dell resells them if I understood that correctly, but then which would seem like a huge plus, I guess. You're getting somebody to sell you. You probably make a little less, but you get you get that. But they also have they have recurring revenue and they're growing. We'll get into some of the more granular growth metrics, but just at a high level, do you not does 
does that speak to you? You express your doubts. Does that speak to you at all that there's something here or do you think this is just a hot hand or how do you sort of within the context, how do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, that's tough. So if they're at 250 million in revenue and we extrapolate them out for a hundred percent growth, then they get to half a billion then they get to a billion, then they get to two billion in revenue in twenty twenty one. Yeah. So look, I mean, so then they get up to two billion in revenue, but you know, right now they're loss making. Their SGNA expense uh, exceeds their gross profit. I was just looking at some other companies. I'd, so like. I don't know if I have a good point here. My, I I don't know what your when the market starts to value this as a sort of more standard company, but I think the multiple is enormous, and I'm not sure. So, the total addressable market is a hundred times. But how much are they? The, the The key question is how much is that total addressable market growing? It's probably growing quickly, although I think cloud computing has not continued on its like completely vertical ramp lately, but I would guess that it's growing quite substantially and the need for it will continue to grow. So that's good. And I guess 20% in four years or whatever that those numbers shake out to be is quite good in terms of your total addressable market. And it looks like they're capturing share in the short term off of not insignificant base. But how much of the their their market cap is fourteen billion? So are they going to be? What's our end state here? Are they going to be priced at three times sales when they have half the market? In which case they're going to be they're going to triple in under whatever time frame that is. That's kind of how I want to try and understand understand this question of the fundamentals and the metrics. I'd, my, my, my concern here is looking at the prospectus, they mentioned that the information security market is highly fragmented and competitive. And so I'm not convinced, and we see sort of Palo Alto Networks is still a loss-making company today, and that's going back, they've had plenty of time to sort of figure that out eight to 10 years. And so my question is, are we too focused on the top line? Is this actually a profitable space to be in, in the long run? Is it too competitive? And do the helicopters ever stop flying over my house? <laughs> I think it's we unbelievable. Do. The birds of living they in the nation's it. capital. In the, yeah, it's... Yeah, I think they come straight northeast to, you know, they probably go to Annapolis some, they probably go to New York some. I don't think I made a good point there, but that's what kind of where I'm kind of like, I think we need a framework to understand what our, what our case is on the other side. If we're doing growth, then you need to have a kind of exit valuation and a time frame and see if that matches up with your needs as an investor for a certain type of return given the risk. And 
I didn't really pick up on that from any of the articles I read. I focused mostly on Mark and Bert. And from, from the perspective, I'm just a little skeptical. I, I think CrowdStrike has done a nice job of telling the market a story of having a competitive advantage but I'm not sure that I'm seeing it. When I think of companies that have these sort of really strong cash generative characteristics, I think of companies that invest a lot more in research and development, a lot less in SGNA relative to revenue. And I think of markets where there aren't big players already in the space. People like Symantec, Palo Alto Networks. I think also, you know, consulting companies like General Dynamics. Uh, there's a lot of information security infrastructure just in the marketplace in general. And so my chief concern about extrapolating the revenue growth going forward is that I see this as a, just a much more fragmented market and I don't see the capture of giant portion of the total addressable market as necessarily a very likely outcome for CrowdStrike. So first, I think you have a few points in there. You have that point about how much market share they're going to have. You have the exit valuation. You have what's the right peer group, I think, has come up. And then, yeah, what's their moat? And I like how you're sort of ignoring our earlier not so technical discussion, but then it's looking at R&D and so forth. So I think that's all. I think those are good points to pull apart. I, I wanted to quickly, some context here just for listeners who aren't following CrowdStrike and who have stuck with us so far. CrowdStrike was originally set to open at $28 to $30 a share. They then priced at $34 a share. They traded up about 85% immediately. And they're up a little bit higher since then. So they're they're at about 70, 70 to 75 right now. So more than double their higher opening price. So just as like a market indicator, a pricing indicator. And yeah, and I think it's just, I, I, I think what's interesting to me, and I, I'm not as skeptical per se. Obviously, I, I don't have the expertise to say whether or not this will continue to the, to maintain such prodigious growth rates. But the fact is that there is a strong growth momentum. They are putting up the numbers so far, and they're building up recurring revenues attractive for a number of reasons. I think their cash flow dynamics will allow them to have more success than it would seem at first from the income statement. It gives them a longer runway. Mark did cite their cash burn as sort of steady. And, you know, obviously you want the cash burn to come down a little bit. What I think is interesting is thinking about whether the market is how how they are what is their framework for getting to that value i mean you just mentioned the the idea of how how do i get to where this is a makes sense evaluation the question is whether it is just a pricing mechanism this is just a game of momentum in the early days and you beat 
earnings and whatever. Is that all there is at this stage? Or is there enough math going on to say something like, okay, if they hit $2 billion in sales, let's say by, you know, we're in fiscal 20 right now. So by fiscal 22, 23, and they're at a $15 billion EV, we're now talking about seven and a half times forward sales two to three years out. You then start to figure, okay, at some point, they're going to be scaling over that SG&A. They're going to be scaling over their other expenses and they're going to start generating cash or they're going to see enough of a growth opportunity to continue invest, which in theory will build up whatever moat they have. And I think that's the sort of that's the sort of framework that would appeal to us more because then you have something at the end that makes sense. And, you know, I think this is I've, I found, I think I've talked before on the podcast, I found at some point in the last couple years, I think inspired by Jim Rommel, who shout out to Jim Rommel. He's an author on Seeking Alpha and a well-known value investor. And he will often invest in these sort of tech companies with positive free cash flow, not huge free cash flow, but positive free cash flow and a low EV to sales numbers, even though they aren't yet profitable on a gap basis. They aren't a classic value play. And one of them, I was proud of myself for, I, I think I actually sort of identified this as that sort of stock before he ended up writing it up on Seeking Alpha. And I, like an idiot, invested in it quite some time after that. It didn't get all the move that he got, but was this company called RapidEye, which is also a security software company also involved in I, I don't remember exactly, but the SIEM, S-I-E-M, I'm trying to remember what that stands for, but security integrated endpoint management or something like that. It, it So it had similar characteristics. CrowdStrike isn't there. It's a different sort of, it's another category. It's another sort of higher growth, but also burning cash. I don't know. I, I I'm rambling a little bit there, but I just think... At some, I, I think it's worth – we have evidence that people are using this product and more people – so in terms of granular numbers, we're talking about 147% retention is the number they report, meaning that of the $100 that they earn from a given customer, they earn 147 the next year, which, like, that's a pretty – That's you nice, know, yeah. There's dollars on the line there. So I don't know. It just seems like there's a lot of that – it's it's one of those companies that you wish you could just ignore the multiple and just analyze as a business and understand whether it's sustainable before you get into the multiple and the multiple is crazy. But yeah, I don't know. I, I guess that's that's where I see cause for optimism. Yeah, I here's here's the kind of like extreme negative like look at this. Okay, you have an updated version of McAfee antivirus. You have a piece of software that analyzes the feedback from this antivirus. And then you have a team of information technology experts that you're going to pay to continually to anal continually analyze this information and provide feedback to your customers based on what you see. Is that it? Is that 
are you going to capture the entire market with those assets? Are you going to capture half the market, a third of the market? It's a lot. The, the company is priced at the value of half half of its 2021 market. So I don't know. I just, then you get into, we talked about this before, then you're like, well, how does the market sort of price these things? And then we're not really doing fundamental analysis anymore. I, I get it. They're showing real traction. They've got real customers and they've got customers who are delighted with the product and they've got customers who are asking them effectively how they can spend more to get CrowdStrike stuff. I I don't necessarily know that the subscription model is something that's particularly attractive. They mention in the prospectus that customers can easily switch between product offerings. And I think when you're looking at high value information technology offerings, vulnerabilities will prompt switching quite quickly. And I'm not sure whether it matters whether you have a SaaS model or another kind of model, you'll eventually lose the recurring revenue one way or another. I'd, I, The things that leap out at me on the negative side are the large SG&A expense relative. I'd, obviously they're in a growth ramp, so, but just relative to R&D, that surprised me a great deal. And it's a it's a it's a potential yellow flag when you're looking at other speculative companies that are trying to address a giant market. Uh, this, but you know, the CEO is quite credible. It seems he was early on uh, with McAfee and has founded and developed several companies at this point. Uh, he dresses extremely well. If you look at his <laughs> Wikipedia page, and we'll include an image in the article, I hope. Of, coordinated plaids <laughs> across shirt pants and suit jacket with a cool pocket square all blue a little bit a little bit over plaided i think i think so then okay so I, i've sort of made that point here's the final point i think there's some air in this i think there's just air in the kind of presentation it smacks very much of a kind of entrepreneur's spin on a company when presenting to prospective investors. And I can't kind of get that taste out of my mouth. They have that great, that they, we don't have a mission statement. We are on a mission, which is just like the wonderfully vapid Silicon Valley type of hype phrase. Like, okay, you don't have a mission statement, but you're on a mission or how do you, what's your plan? Like, what is your mission? It's like this beautifully self-aggrandizing yet self-contradictory type of logic that reminds me of guys with the little microphone things uh, standing in front of a giant projector. Uh, and I think, I think when I look at the sort of the grabs from the prospectus of the business model and the, you know, land and expand strategy, uh, get the easily downloadable and usable and non-interfering software in and then upsell to these other things. Those all sound great. And there's evidence that it's working. I just wonder if, I mean, whether that's also reflected in, 
in the share price. There's something kind of airy about this, which is a gut feeling, but I'd, it's what I've got. I'd like to also propose another piece of context here, which is that their competitors are awful as companies. Like their competitors are McAfee and Symantec and BlackBerry, which, you know, in their third iteration and even Carbon Black, who sounds like a newer hot tech company, but, you know, is not, yeah. not yeah. growing. You know, like, yeah, it's likely that I'm underestimating just how right for disruption this market is well because you know cybersecurity is still such a pro you know whether it's you know trivia like think of headlines like the democrats getting hacked or wanna cry or whatever else like and again we're i'm not claiming to about the only knowledge i'm presenting here is my computer programming father's opinion that mcafee is, is terrible that's like the only can we get your father on the podcast? <laughs> I don't know if he'd be available. He's, he's retired. He's retired, but oh, okay, okay. But, okay. but he, you know, respect is respect the man. You have McAfee awesome. <laughs> get the rid of it, fellas. You know, and so like that's my experience with get rid of it. What are you doing? He's much more vulgar, but we want to keep our clean rating on iTunes. So I don't want to. Oh yeah, that's really important. <laughs> That we want to keep our security there. But so, so that's sort of, I just, I think it's worth, I, I think we don't know, obviously, right? We don't have the expertise here to grade these companies and to truly understand whether or not they are crowds. I, I think you're right. Like it is airy in the mission we statement. We can't judge their IP. Like we don't know what their IP is and right. we don't know how valuable it is. We could talk to people who would know that, but we don't know. So yeah, we kind of have to leave that aside. I keep, but that's what I'm struggling with. No, but at it, the same time, and, and you're you're right. To, it's not like you, we should throw it out. We for for now, we can't judge it effectively, but it still is quite important. So we do need to, you know, for investors looking at it, you do need to get some comfort, and that's where you know Bert Hockfeld has a decent amount of experience in tech, technological space. M- Mark is quite smart about these companies follows them quite closely he he was he brought up zscaler a lot was the other company and pointed out that there's a different security model but that's also one of the hotter ipos of recent memory and doing really well and again it's not that if a company's hot then another company has to be hot like that's where bubbles happen but yeah for sure understanding the the blind spot here's what i think is maybe a One takeaway I think I can get from this is that CrowdStrike is not the same as Beyond Meat. Like Beyond Meat is kind of just clearly, in my opinion at least, priced to the sky and overvalued. Just sort of it's, it's sort of impossible for me to come up with another conclusion when I look at that company. CrowdStrike is not in the same caliber. You can be cautious and skeptical, but you do have a lot more. It's not, it's just not this, it's not the same thing. They have technology, they have intellectual property, they have these customer dynamics that are very attractive. I, so the, the point that I'm arriving at is that we're kind of talking lately about how the IPO 
window is just like so wide open that now is a great time to sell stock in a company just because you can get these really nice, rich valuations out of the market. It doesn't mean that all the companies going public are bad. And it's probably really worthwhile to come to these, come to solid conclusions about sort of separating which one is which. As you say that, I look at the Beyond Meat quote page and the news is Beyond Meat down 1.8% after Taco Bell snub and then Del Taco and Beyond Meat in Burrito Pact, which is just the saddest pair of headlines I can think. Like, well, we're not in Taco Bell, but we're in Del Taco. It's like, really? Is that what, is that the growth story here? Well, it's the premium, it's the slight step up, I think. I don't know. I don't know where Del Taco is relative to Taco Bell. Yeah. I only, I'm only a Chipotle guy due to my discerning <laughs> taste. <laughs> I recall our Chipotle discussions. I still have a trash Chipotle, but we're a little. Yeah, I think you've. I think you've got at it. I think, and I think that's what we're. CrowdStrike isn't just a crazy IPO with a lot of hype. It's not a cannabis stock at the wrong stage, or it's not Bitcoin oriented or whatever. It's clearly got a real business. It appears to be a business that their customers like, based on the soft quantitative stuff that we talked about with the Gartner reviews or whatever else, but also based on the, the net retention number that they use and whatever else. So there's something here and trying to understand what it like, it is crazily valued and we would, I, I would never say otherwise, but I do think it's interesting to try to think, how does the market look at a company like that? Because I think there's, it's easy to say, and I think Mark may have referenced, if not in this article, then in the article he did on Zscaler, which I may have looked at as well. He referenced the, you know, IPOs sometimes work. You can you could have bought Google at IPO. But I think that in hindsight, like, okay, Google, everybody, even in 2004 or whenever, it was still the destination. And you could see that it was an important channel. Facebook, too. I, we, I, I was sort of a newer investor then, but I do remember thinking like, Everybody uses Facebook and yeah, it's crazily expensive, but it could be a good price eventually. And it actually did hit a really attractive price, even ex ante in that first year in the turmoil before it started on its growth train. But there's a lot of attractive companies in more niche sectors or in smaller sectors that have these really interesting profiles that don't get the same sort of attention and that are just kind of, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just interesting to try to understand what are people smarter than us doing when they're thinking about these stocks and how are they approaching them? Because it, I think it carries over to other things. I agree. That's why we have Mark in our, in our world. Uh, I think, yeah, I, having a larger toolkit is potentially valuable and it's something that we should also just know as sort of from a more broad perspective of, you know, I hate to use the word journalist to describe us because it really seems misapplied. But as people trying to understand the world, it's, it's good for us to explore these business models and these businesses opportunities and these companies that are at different, that are not at the value investment stage, that are not at the mature stage and figure out what that means and 
what the market is thinking and what smart people are thinking. So my disgust and general distaste for uh, Silicon Valley type of positioning, marketing, branding had probably gotten in the way of my of a more sober analysis here. And so that's something for me to think about next time. Listeners, Mike's upset because we went out to Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago and tried to pitch funding for our podcast and we just didn't quite pull it together. So just that. No, we were close. Well, the terms were just too onerous. They, know, they, wouldn't give us, was... they wouldn't give us the full voting control we wanted. That was really the issue. That's right. The dual share class. They were like, <laughs> no way. <laughs> so of all things for them to grow a spine over a podcast. No. Um, yeah, yeah. None of that's true. Yeah. None, none of that's true. But um, but yeah, I think we got to a good place. I think it's uh, I, yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's not every company we look at can be a cars.com where there's a value story or or a value trap. Like you, these growth stories are, and we are just in this, like you said, this wave of IPOs that I don't really remember the last. Like I don't know that we've had quite a. Str- I guess when. Facebook came public, then there was sort of a social media wave to some degree. You had Twitter, Zynga in there. Snap eventually was sort of the tail end of that. But we should do Zynga. That would be great. We could do I Zynga. love Zynga. <laughs> yeah, but we're in a different moment. It's kind of fun to be in a different moment. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. And I was, yeah, it's just, it was interesting. I, I'm working on some interview questions for some of our marketplace authors. And I was just, I was like, so we did this, we did a round of interviews at the end of the year when there was doubts about the trade war, doubts about the Fed's stance, doubts about the economic cycle. And they were priced in to some degree. And six months later, the question sort of implies, I think there are still these doubts and yet we're in this IPO wave. We're at all time highs. Like it's just, it's just interesting how things are, you know, the market's never boring, I think, or rarely boring. So as long as CrowdStrike can keep growing and keep us secure, we can uh, hope that there's a story here. Keep the hope of the story alive, Daniel. <laughs> Shout out to that. that it, it, you got to give credit to the CEO for wearing that suit in any profession. Shout out to the suit. Yeah, I think that's the biggest, biggest victory so far in his career is pulling off that suit. Probably second is this IPO. I mean, we, you know, we're right on the heels of the NBA draft, which is known for the colorful. Yeah, it is an NBA draft worthy suit. Yeah, so. that's for sure. All right, Daniel. I think we should end there. Yeah, let's do that. All right. Good stuff, Mike. See you later. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like this sort of IPO coverage or cloud computing stories, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com with any other favorites you'd like us to review. We would love to have a look. If you have a better way to look at these companies, also please let us know. We're always trying to update our approach. Please leave a review on Apple to help other investors find this podcast. This means Seeking Alpha production. Thank you for listening. and see you next week on Behind the Idea.